Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk Tribe. It's, it's been a while. It's been, uh, I think this is the first recording we've done in 2014. Uh, baseball is back, so the podcast is back soon. Uh, Tuesday, the 11th, and Indians pitchers and coaches just reported for spring training today. So uh, in the, the coming weeks, we'll be talking about uh, their offseason and moves they're making and position battles at camp. Um, but this week, we're going to do something a little different because I had that opportunity to bring on a guest I'm really excited about. Uh, he's the lead writer, the lead baseball writer at Grantland. Uh, he's a regular contributor to Baseball Tonight on ESPN. And he's also the author of two books, including the upcoming Up, Up and Away uh, which I'll get back to shortly. My guest this week is Jonah Carey. Jonah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. Um, one of the things I like to do when I talk to someone for the first time, just kind of an icebreaker, is just uh, to ask how and when uh, you first became a baseball fan. Oh, uh, I don't know, young age, I guess. My uh... My maternal grandfather was a big baseball fan. I grew up in Montreal, so I used to watch the Expos games. And uh, yeah, it's sort of been a while ago. I was probably six or so. My first memory that I could specifically remember was a horrible moment, actually, in franchise history. It was a home run by a guy named Rick Monday. They were one uh, one inning away, basically, from going to the World Series. It was a tie game in the ninth inning, deciding game of the 81 LCS against the Dodgers, and Monday at home run. I was seven at that point, so... Not a great okay. introduction, but good foreshadowing of all the uh, horrible things that were to come in Expo's history. <laughs> right. Um, so then coming back uh, to your new book, which is coming out, uh, which is on, I guess, sort of the, the complete history of the Expos. Is that right? Yeah, it's called Up, Up, and Away, and uh, it's everything. It's 1969 through 2004, lots and lots of interviews, Tim Raines. Andre Dawson, Pedro Martinez, Rusty Stops, Leap Alu, all kinds of stuff. It's a lot of fun. And uh, you've written, this is your second book, is that right? Second solo book. I did a bunch of um, kind of group projects, uh, a lot of them with the Baseball Perspectives group, but Baseball sure. Between the Numbers was a book we put out in, uh, what, I was six, I think a paperback made it, but I was seven. I was the editor and the co-author of that one, and then a bunch of BP annuals, which I edited, right. and uh, some little things here and there. But uh, these are my two solo books, are uh, The Extra 2% and Up, Up, and Away. And so Up, Up, and Away and The Expos, is this, uh, I would I would think, given your, your fandom, uh, the book you sort of wanted to write for a long time? Is that is that right, or did it come to you more recently? Not even remotely true. I... Uh, I uh, had a relationship with a guy named Paul Taunton, uh, who was my editor at, um, he did up, up uh, he did um, X2%. That's a funny story, which I'll try to condense as best as I can. But basically, uh, I get an email in 2007 from this guy, Paul Taunton, never heard of him in my life. And uh, it's got P. Taunton at, uh, you know, Random House. And I'm like, well, right, well right, this is interesting. Okay. Uh, and he says, uh, you don't know me. But uh, I used to post on the same Montreal Expo's message board as you in the 90s. And I followed, and I, by the way, in the 90s, I was not a sports writer remotely. In fact, I was barely a writer. I was just out of college. And uh, it's like late 90s. And he says, 
uh, been following your work, you know, since then, and uh, you're great, and I want you to come write a book for me. And I'm like, wow, this is, or somebody punking me, whatever, this is ridiculous. <laughs> that my work on a message board when I was 22 years old would get noticed by some random house dude. But anyway, it was serious, and uh, we struck up, uh, you know, friendship, and then uh, about a year after that first email was, uh, a guy named Steve Wolf, who was kind of working with the two of us, suggested the book on the Tampa Bay Rays, next to 2%, and then uh, pretty much right after the Rays book came out, uh, Paul and I were driving around downtown Toronto, and he said, uh, okay, we've got to do an Expos book. And I said, I am not doing any more books. And he said, you must do this book. And I said, even if I wanted to do a book, which I don't want to, there's no way an Expos book will sell. Nobody's going to be interested in the stupid Expos, and nobody cared about them when they existed. Nobody's going to care about them now. And he goes, if you don't do this book, I'm going to give it to Jeff Blair. Jeff Blair used to cover the Expos, and it's from the Toronto Golden Mail. I said, all right, fine, I'll do your damn book. That's literally how it happened. He actually had to convince me to do it. Because uh, it was a lot of work to write one, and uh, yeah, this is not coal mining. I mean, whatever, it's fun. But uh, I just at that point was a little bit burned out, and uh, anyway, I ended up accepting his offer, and uh, it was a hell of a lot of work, but it's done, and it comes out soon. Yeah. So, like, then how long from from that conversation to I don't know, however many weeks ago, you sort of did whatever the last thing to do. Like, how, how long a, a process was that then? I uh, signed the deal in June of 2011, although realistically I was already kind of starting the due diligence before that because we had our initial conversation maybe March or April of that year. And, uh, yeah, turned in my last uh, edits, I guess, on it uh, two weeks ago. So it was uh, close to three years was the, was the process, which is not that similar to the Ray's book. Ray's book was probably about two and a half, too. So this was slightly longer than that one, I guess. Right. I wonder then how you see – there's always, you know, like I remember in 2004, the Red Sox finally won the World Series. And by Thanksgiving, there yep. were like four books out about it. Um, must have been sort of a sloppy process for those books, I guess. Um, so who, uh, Tim Raines was your, your well, at least Tim Raines is the player I identify as your favorite player. I guess I don't know for sure if he really was. Um, but I sort of imagine he was one. Who were the guys that when you got the chance to talk to him, it was sort of most exciting for you? Yeah, I guess I had different favorite players in different eras. I mean, Reigns is probably the guy, but he was the 80s guy. In the 90s, I was a big Larry Walker fan. And uh, then, obviously, Vladimir Guerrero toward the end was pretty awesome. But, uh, I mean, Reigns was definitely a very exciting. I'd spoken to him before, though. I'd interviewed him for ESPN.com. I'd done a piece, a Q&A with him over there. And, and here and there, I talked to him, and I kind of knew his uh, rep, lawyer, whatever you want to call him. So we, we communicated fairly frequently. And he, he knew about uh, this uh, little side website that me and a couple other guys, uh, co-equaling Tango Tiger is a very well-known um, online right. analytical type. We run, it's called, uh, it's basically the Tim Raines Hall of Fame site, Raines30.com. So, so we were aware of each other and all that stuff. Um, my favorite interview was probably with Felipe Alou, honestly. It was great. I, I spent, uh, I took a while to track him down. He's just not somebody who, you know, answers phone calls from randoms that he doesn't know or Whatever, right. and I had to go to the Giants Spring Training Complex, and I tracked him down, we sat down for an hour, and we talked about everything. We talked about baseball, we talked about you know, family history and spirituality. I'm not a particularly spiritual guy, but very, very interesting uh, conversation. It was great. It was like an hour. Great talk with Cliff Floyd. I had breakfast with him one day for two hours in Miami, and he was just fantastic, telling me his story. He had a very bad wrist injury in 1995. He was literally in tears as he's telling me this thing over, you know, eggs and toast uh, in a crown right. coffee shop. That was great. There's just all, all kinds of stuff. Uh, rusty stop, you know, it was before my era. Um, but, uh, you know, before I was born, never mind. 
But uh, so that, those kind of old-time interviews were really great, too, to just kind of get a feel for the team. Before I really was aware of baseball or anything, uh, what Jerry Park was like, what the early teams were like, I really enjoyed that, too. So, you know, there were a bunch that stood out to me, and that was the best part. I mean, the writing is a big jigsaw puzzle, and you got to put it all together and craft mm-hmm. the chapters and write it and rewrite it and write it and rewrite it. But the interviewing is so much fun, man. You just you talk and ball with all these people who are delighted to talk to you. If you have to do a book about – you know, current players, it's not as easy. They might not be as forthcoming. But with these guys, obviously the team is, you know, long since dead. And so they were happy to say whatever. They were very candid. It was great. <laughs> I really, really loved the reporting process. Yeah, I can imagine. Was there – I certainly don't I don't need to name names. Was there anyone you wanted to talk to that you either just couldn't track down or you tracked down but wasn't interested? Was there – is there anything in your mind uh, that's missing? Nobody – that I felt, oh, I really needed this guy in the book and was unable to land that person. I definitely uh, tried. You know, there were, co- there were only two people who turned me down flat out. Is it two? I guess it's two. One was Randy Johnson, for whatever reason, and right. uh, Bud Selig. Bud didn't officially say no. It was just kind of, I kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Right. Finally, MLBPR just kind of said, we don't know if it's going to happen. I did make an effort to get Jeffrey Loria and didn't talk to Loria, but I was in Miami, and I talked to David Sampson at length. And Sampson, honestly, was more hands-on than Loria was, despite the fact that uh-huh. Loria was more associated with the team. So, uh, and he didn't hold back. He told me everything, so that was fine. So I don't, I don't really view that as somebody that I didn't get, per se. So it would have been nice to get Bud just to add a little bit of uh, that element of it to it. But uh, you sure. know, through my reporting and secondary sources, it became kind of obvious what happened to the team and why. So it wasn't like there was a piece missing that Selig would have been able to fill in necessarily. Same with Randy Johnson. I mean, I have so many people talking about Randy Johnson in the book and the famous trade where they traded him away that I didn't feel like, oh, gosh, you know, I missed out by not talking to the guy. Right. So uh, for my lifetime anyway, kind of the major – when I think of the Expos, I think of 1994 uh, when, for anyone who's listening that – isn't aware that the Expos had the, the best record in baseball and uh, and then the strike hit and washed away the rest of the season. And I, don't, I mean, I don't recall, were, were the Expos ever really even in contention in the last month of the season after that? I don't recall. Uh, sure, but... lots of times. Yeah, they definitely More were. Real. Let's see, 1996. Yeah, 96, they went out to the last weekend of the season with a chance for the wild card. Uh, oh, let's look, 97, 98, 99, oh, two, they, well, we'll get to 0-2 in a minute. There was a lot of stuff that right. happened that year, but they were in the mix. And then oh three 3 actually, they were tied for the wild card lead uh, just before Labor Day, and they had a big series against the, uh, they beat us, they swept the Phillies. They were chasing the Phillies and the Marlins. They swept the Phillies right at the end of August, and it was an incredible series. It was kind of the last gasp for the franchise. So, in 96, they were really, really close. They actually had a legit shot. They, they were eliminated on the second last of the season. And 03, they were, you know, quite in the mix, I would say. And then 02, they were in the mix enough at least to make a go of it, and they made some pretty interesting trades that year. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's much more success than I remember. The narrative in my mind was sort of 94 got wiped away, and they were never – a great team again. Um, but that 94 season, I'm a little younger than you. I was at uh, a summer camp. I would have been 14 that year. Um, and I remember getting, 
someone got like a, a letter from their from their dad saying that baseball had stopped. Um, and I'm sure if I'd been old enough, I would have known it was coming, but I had no idea it was coming and couldn't fathom. And the Indians were doing really well that season too. Um, sure. So w- would you have been, what, in high school, early college at that point? In 94? Yeah. Sorry about 94? Yeah, 94, I would have been just starting college. Yeah, starting college. So you were old enough that you had by then probably been going to games with friends and stuff like that. And what oh, do you sure. remember about yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. Sorry, say again? Yeah, just kind of, you know, what you remember about that season. About 94, well, I mean, well, here, there are a lot of things I remember about that season. Um, there were some particular games that stood out. One thing that was interesting was uh, I saw them on the road in some pretty interesting, pivotal games. I just had this tendency, it was very, uh, depending on what frame of reference you want to use, you can either say Forrest Gump or, or Zelig, just kind of being <laughs> at these big events randomly, you know, all the, the memorable games almost from like, I don't know, 85 through 97, I guess I was at, it seemed like every big game I was there. And in 94, it wasn't just that I was there for home games. That summer I was dating a girl. I just started dating her in uh, February of that year and uh, basically flew to California and hung out with her in California for the summer and uh, went to some games that were these big, big games, including this big series against the Padres right before the All-Star break when they swept the Padres four in a row. And the last game of that series was when they took over first place. I think they might have, you know, Florida was first place here and there, but this is when they took it over and then stayed with it. They finally passed right. the grade at that point. And uh, I was at a game, I want to say, I, I'm going to get the order incorrect. I think it was Will Cordero hit two home runs and Moises Alou hit a grand slam, and they won something outrageous, like 12 to 1. They were facing Joey <laughs> Hamilton, who was a rookie, who was dynamite that season. He was killing everybody. Next was just murdered him. And we had, had good seats for a change. I don't, didn't usually have good seats. Sitting behind home plate, and I just witnessed this massacre, and I just thought to myself, at that moment, there's no way they're not winning the World Series. Like, it was a given. Right. Was just, and this is obviously bias and whatever. Obviously, the Indians were good. The Yankees were good. There were lots of good teams that year. But, man, I mean, just this, they had gone on this streak where they were demolishing everybody. It was a total joke. And, in fact, they even got better after the All-Star break. They went 20-3 and three leading up to, this, to the day that they went on strike. So they were 74-40, and 40, but they were rising. They started the year. They, their first, like, 20 games, they were under 500. They had some ludicrous record after that. It was like a 700 winning percentage over something like 100 games, which is impossible. They were just they were right. murdering teams. And, yeah, and interviewing the guys afterwards for the book, Larry Walker and all these guys, they were laughing telling the story. They were just like, we're going to the ballpark. We knew we were going to crap all over these guys. Like, they were just talking, <laughs> talking, smack about every other team. They're like, oh, they had no shot. We knew we were going to murder them. It's because Floyd was hanging and Walker and Darren Fletcher and all these guys. They were just like, it was beyond confidence. It was flat-out arrogance because all these guys were like 25. It was, in addition to the best team, it was such a young, young team, too. And they were just stomping on people's heads. I, I just, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the playoffs. It's a crapshoot. Eight teams, that would have been the first year of the wild card. We don't know what would have happened. But uh, right. certainly at the time of the strike, there was no team playing as well as the Expos. They were just killing everybody. Yeah. No, I mean, I know. I think, you know, to some extent, that's how I felt with the Indians that year because the, the Indians hadn't been good for a while. And then suddenly, yep. uh, actually pretty similar, they were sort of a 500 team for longer than the Expos even. I think it's about Memorial Day weekend. And then they went on a pretty good tear too, and they were – in the wild card, only a game back 
when the strike hit. And uh, yeah, I was convinced oh, this was going to be the year. But then, of course, you know, they had 95 when they were incredible. And but then, as you talked about the crapshoot of the playoffs, the the one time the Braves sure. win the World Series. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. I guess. Well, ultimately, 95 is not big what should have been, but I think what I remember about 94 was, yeah, um, there was so many, there was Matt Williams and Ken Griffey had a ton of home runs uh, and were both sort of, you know, close to on pace for Maris's record. Uh, Chuck Knobloch had like some insane number of doubles. Greg Maddox was having an unreal season. I remember all of the big individual performances that it felt like it was such a shame and I remember Sports Illustrated at the end of the year did like a like a fake played out the season issue. And they, you know, like covered the entire last month and a half of the season. I'm pretty sure I want to, the Expos might have won the World Series in it for all I can remember. But that's what stands out for me is, is feeling like just a lot of really cool things were were lost that year. Yeah, you didn't even uh, mention Tony Gwynn hitting 394 that year, by the uh, way. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, knew I, was, yeah. I knew I was leaving something out. Yeah, he had a real yeah, start at 400, a... too. It's, right. It's funny about the Braves um, in 95 and winning the World Series and all that. One of the, I mean, the big thing about 94, you know, the season's canceled and all that, but afterwards, they, the Expos just executed this fire cell, which was horrible. And, and as you know, when you have a good team, you can get rid of guys as long as you make good trades or even get compensatory draft picks, something. They let Walker go for nothing. They wouldn't even offer him arbitration. Obviously, they would have collected two picks. Then they traded Grissom, Ken Hill, and John Wetland, who were three of the better players in the league, for nothing, man. They got Roberto Kelly and Fernando Seguignol and all these sticks. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, Grissom was traded to the Braves, and he actually caught the final out of the World Series. So it wasn't just that Grissom – you know, helped the Braves win the World Series. He was a very good player for that team. It was – that could have been the Expos. If, if they did nothing, if you just come back in 1995 and leave the same team intact. And it wasn't right. a high payroll, by the way. They had a very low payroll team. So even with some raises, it would have been fine. If they leave that team intact with Grissom and Walker and, and Moise Salou and Wetland and all those guys, I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't have been the best. You can never predict injuries or whatever. seems to me, though, that they would have had a great shot at being the best team in baseball in 95. And, you know, it's possible the Indians have been playing the Expos in that World Series. Right. You know, we, we can never say for sure, but, uh, you know, the Expos not only blew it up, but they handed one of their best players to an arch rival, uh, and they went on to that dynasty. I don't know if the Braves dynasty, frankly, ever happened if the Expos are a normal, functional team that just hangs on to their players. It's entirely possible that they reel off, you know, six, seven division titles in a row themselves because all their best players were in their 20s. So, yeah, there's a lot of what-ifs that go beyond just the 94 season, just literally doing nothing but keeping their team intact might have resulted in some big things. That fire sale, there were a lot of bad things in Expo's history, but just getting rid of four guys within a span of literally four days was one of the worst things that ever happened to the team. What what led to the fire sale then? Like, what what prompted it, do you think? Well, it's the same problem that they had. I, not I think, I know what happened. Uh, it's the same problem <laughs> that they had throughout their history. I mean, people kind of try to, you know, from a distance, are trying to figure out why did the Expo's not exist. You know, if you don't know that much about it, you can say, well, they didn't draw any fans or there wasn't much interest or whatever. It wasn't anything like that. It was that they had no ownership. They, 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 Charles Bronson was the guy who owned the team from 1969 through 91. He was the heir to the Seagram's fortune, which is a big liquor company in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he ran the team with the money. So he paid, you know, Andre Dawson and Gary Carter. He paid them real wages, and it was all fine. And then he sold the team to this consortium of boobs, basically, run by a guy named Claude Berchou, who was the main owner. 
But the other people that were in the consortium represented the largest companies in Canada with Bell, which is a giant multi-billion dollar company, and uh, Provigo, which is a big um, uh, grocery store chain. Jacques Couture is a big uh, drug store chain. Uh, Case Desjardins, which is a big uh, credit union chain. They had just tons of money coming out of their ears. Canadian Pacific, these gigantic companies. But these companies all agreed to put $5 million in at the beginning, and then they said, don't bother us for any more money no matter what. So imagine if you're the president of India in 2014, and you have to run the team on a 1991 budget. That is literally what the vision of these owners were. And so as you go down the pike, even in 94, they're the second lowest payroll in baseball, yet they had that magnificent team. So when, when the strike happened, they lost all this money from the home base of the regular season, let alone what they could have made in the playoffs. And then Claude Brochu said, sell everybody. Just get rid of everybody because we're losing tons of money because the, the owners wouldn't put anything in. So we have to get rid of everybody. And it was this thing where, you know, they just they wouldn't show any patience. It was so frustrating because, okay, let's say that you have to trade Grissom and Will and Hill and Wedland. Fine, then you play the market and you let it play out or whatever. Kevin Malone, who was the general manager at the time, said, you know, I had gone to my head. I was forced to just give these guys away for nothing, had no time to scour the market. Every other team knew they had leverage on the Expos. And that was the end of that, basically. You know, it was just this horrible situation. In fact, if I'm remembering right, no, Hill was traded to the Cardinals, not to the Indians. He did end up on the Indians later on, but he wasn't. Yeah, he nothing. did. But it was just this, this horrible situation where they wouldn't, they just, it was so short-sighted, you know, that even if you felt you were going to lose money or whatever and it was a big financial problem, if the goal was really to secure the future of the team, then of course you take your time and you, and you, you know, wait for it all to play out and you kind of traded them during spring training or whatever. So it was immensely frustrating how that went down. And I don't think that's a story that's been told wide. I mean, Expo fans know about it, but it's not like Cleveland Indian fans do. And I get into right. it for a bit. And just, you, you've literally never seen anything like this in the last 40 years of baseball. There's never been a team that's just, you know, demolished the core of their team for nothing on purpose. I mean, it's just, it, it's phenomenal. It's appalling how that happened and really, you know, gets to the heart of, of how much dysfunction existed in that team uh, from basically the early 90s on. They could have won the World Series in 1994, fine, but I don't think that would have made a big difference because these owners were so bad and so stubborn and wouldn't put any money in that, you know, it was going to fall apart sooner or later. It just, 94 and the strike, that was kind of the, uh, you know, basically the tipping point, really. But they had problems way before that. Right. Do you know, do you know offhand when, you probably do, when it was announced uh, that they were leaving Montreal? Yeah, it was announced, uh, you know, on the day right before the last game was uh, was when they did it. It wasn't, you know, there was a feeling every year that they were going to move. I remember going to the last game of the season in like a one or a two, and you know, mentally I kind of said a quiet goodbye. I was like, oh, this is it. They're going to leave, whatever. And then they didn't. You know, they stayed around. They stayed around in '03, and then in '04, and '04 was a miserable season. Like '03, they were not that bad, but '04 was terrible. And uh, it was literally on the last day, the last home game. Not the last day of the season, I should say. It was before the last home game. Uh, they announced it that morning. All the employees found out. They were all crying, whatever. And then fans suddenly showed up. I mean, you know, the thing about fans, I think people kind of crap on Expos fans a lot. But it's you know, the kind of thing you go to a restaurant, and every single day the owner of the restaurant says, there are going to be cockroaches in your soup. There are going to be cockroaches in your soup. And after a while, there's no self-respecting person that's going to come to the damn restaurant and eat cockroaches. It's just not going to happen. And uh, so for years and years this is going on. It's like an anti-marketing campaign, and uh, it's really brutal. And then finally when this thing comes down the pike and, and they find out that morning or even early afternoon that there's going to be no more baseball in Montreal, I think they've sold maybe, you know, 
uh, four or five thousand tickets, and thirty odd thousand people showed up. Twenty five thousand people mobilized within a span of something like four hours and got to the ball game because they said, "Okay, this is going to be the last game." So, if anything, that was sort of a last gasp that told you that fans do exist in that city. It's just that you had abused them for so long. So that's kind of what went down. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the last game ever ended up being at Chase Stadium uh, against the Mets. And, uh, and there were some excellent fans that made the trek for that one, too. I have a whole uh, stack of ticket stubs sent to me from various people who knew about my book and just said, here, I have this stub. I want you to have it. It's the last game in the history of the Expo. So, you know, there are definitely some diehards out there. Even now, 10 years later, there are people that still carry the torch. Yeah, I mean, the, the Blue Jays have, like, Expos night, don't they? Yeah, well, that's a whole story. It's not because the J has nothing to do with the Jays. It's because of this group of people. There's a, a online entity called Expos Nation. They have some ungodly number, like 170 thousand likes on Facebook, and it's run by a guy named Matthew Ross, who I know, and uh, he kind of put it together. And I went to the first one where we just basically had a caravan of people show up at Rogers Center and kind of take over a couple sections of the bleachers. Uh, they went in 2013. There were a 1,000 people there, a 1,000. You know, there's wow. no Expos game going on or whatever. It was just a bunch of Expos fans that said, screw it, let's go wear the gear and go to the game. And what's right. really cool is this spring, March 28th and 29th, there's going to be two exhibition games, Jays and Mets, and uh, they've sold, according to reports, 100,000 tickets for the two games. And I got news for you, buddy. That ain't Jays fans and Mets fans. That is Expos fans. <laughs> with 10 years of pent-up energy running to head to the ballpark, and I'll be there myself. So that's going to be a giant party. That's going to be a very, a really a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, you can you can tell your Expo friends if, if they want. There's lots of good seats available in Cleveland any time, and we could we could use the attendance. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would think that the Indians might get a little bit of a boost this year, no? I mean, after last, it's sort of it tends to be a year-after effect when a team is successful, and, of course, the Indians were successful last year. So maybe there were more people that bought season tickets over the winter who are going to be reflecting the attendance count. That tends to be how it goes more often than not, no? Yeah, that's the hope. Um, there wasn't that big a bump in 08 coming off 07 when they were a win away from the right. World Series, though. I don't know what the deal is. And, and I'm not in Cleveland, so I don't have that same kind of – I don't have that sense of it, but uh, I don't know. People seem really pessimistic constantly, whereas, like, the Browns, have been abysmal for 15 years, but every summer everyone's like, oh, this is going to be the year. This is going to be the year. Um, so I don't right. know. I, I, I hope there's an attendance boost. Um, we'll see. I mean, the, the, the park was packed for the, the wild card game, and it was, it was neat to see that kind yep. of atmosphere. So we'll see. Um, well, coming back to the Indians then, since we sort of circled back to them, the other kind of expose Indians connection, the, the most uh, legitimate one, is the Bartolo Colon trade. Uh, and that was trade. That was O two, I think, right? Two thousand two. Correct. O two. Pretty sure. And uh, and again, for June, anyone listening who's not aware, that was yeah. That, I think you're right. The uh, the the Indians traded Cologne. That the the Indians were terrible that year. That was sort of the year after their run ended, and they traded Cologne for uh, prospects. And I don't even know who the big you, – you might know. I don't know who the big prospect was at the time. But Grady Sizemore, Cliff Lee, and Brandon Phillips all came back in that deal. Uh, and, boy, did the three of them outperform Bartolo Colon in the, in the next few years. Um, can you recall your mindset at the time of the trade? Uh, yes. Before we get into that, let me just point out that, uh, you know, obviously the Expos are dead and gone. Bartolo Colon was pretty damn good last year, which is insane. Oh, yeah, because he yeah. was an established veteran, 
in 2002, he was already, you know, kind of the older guy in the trade, and he's still kicking. So uh, certainly yeah. more – I mean, I don't want to pick on poor Grady Sizemore, but he was more obviously more valuable than Sizemore. And you could argue that he was right up there with Phillips. Lee is really, really good, so maybe that's a different story. But, uh, yeah, you know, he's kicking, so that's interesting. You know, it's funny about that trade – you know, from the perspective of, if you're a national fan, you should be so pissed off with that. I mean, Omar Minaya just did not care about the future of the team. He was basically trying to secure his own future as a GM. And, uh, you know, his mandate was, or the belief was that the, that the team might get contracted or something like that. And, okay, so, you know, he could just, he could just do whatever he wanted to do, and he did, of course. But, uh, you know, for an Expos fan, the feeling was every year that they were going to leave, so it was like, man, if there's even a slight chance, that they're going to make the playoffs, and who gives a crap? Just go for it. And I, I, you know, I was a big Expos fan, and but then I started writing for Baseball Perspectives, and I knew enough about prospects that I knew these guys were really good. And, and you know, the prospect mania now, everything is covered and scrutinized or whatever, but even in yeah. O2, it was pretty clear that this was a, such a lopsided try. Cologne was great, by the way. Cologne had a – he was terrific. We cannot understate – you talk about how Cologne – after that wasn't that great. First of all, he won a playing with the Angels a few years later. And at the end of that season, he pitched terrifically for the Expos. He was actually great in the second half of that year. That wasn't the problem. The problem was, even for an elite pitcher, you just did not give up three premium prospects. It was unheard of back then and now, of course. And, uh, yeah, you know, it just became this big lopsided deal. You know, it's funny. Phillips was considered the, the prize of the deal for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was just a really good athlete, and he was an up-the-middle player and all that. And number two, he's relatively close to the big league. Sizemore was kind of the biggest project. He was a football player in high school, and the thought was he's a great, great athlete. They just didn't know how he'd pan out. But my guy was Cliff Lee, and I think that goes to my proclivities a little bit because Lee, talent-wise, was probably considered the least of the three. In fact, he was considered the least of the three. But go look at his double-A numbers at the time of that trade. He was a monster in double-A. He was really, really good. Big strikeouts, obviously had that great command, which, of course, he's had throughout his career. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, I was just I was bumming about that guy. Not, I didn't really think he'd ever become an expo, but I thought good for the Indians because he's going to turn out to be a great player. He was the one that I felt the most confident about, and I guess he's had a great career in the end. Yeah, no, I mean he's had the best career. I think you know Sizemore at his peak, yeah, I think was that. one of the five or six best players in baseball. But in terms of overall value, yeah, yeah I mean Cliff Lee's had the best career. Um, and the. The blessing and curse of that trade for the Indians, I mean, the, the blessing is getting, they didn't really get anything out of Brandon Phillips because they gave up on him too soon, but but Sizemore especially and, and Lee too. Um, the curse is a lot of Indians fans, that, that's their bar for trades. It's like, well, what do you mean we only got this and this? Why didn't we get, you know, every trade feels like a massive disappointment when you don't get three future all-stars back in it. Um, right. No, yeah. I mean, that's obviously an unrealistic standard. Manaya was, you know, drunk with power or whatever you want to say. I mean, that's that's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. That's never going to happen again. And, and really, not just it's not just that it was Manaya. It was at that point in time, prospects were not quite as valued as they are now. I think teams really, really right. understand that there are you, – you can't buy anybody a free agency. Everybody gets locked up beforehand. And I'm not even only talking about the uh, Dodgers locking teams up. I mean, Evan Longoria got taken off the market and Joey Votto and – Players like that, these these are t- players that don't play for high-revenue teams, but uh, right. their clubs just make a point of making sure that they don't get out there. So, you know, you really have to develop your own to be good. And obviously the Indians have the, uh, you know, the double issue where not only do you have to develop your own because of the free agency situation, but also that they're a lower-revenue team. So, yeah, I mean, you know, to expect to get three great prospects in one trade, 
I don't care who you trade. You know, even if you traded, uh, well, pick whoever your favorite Indian is. I, there, there's just no way that you would get that kind of package. It's not happening. Right. Yeah, and then you know the Indians later had to trade Lee, and a year before that they had to trade Sabathia, and you know neither yep. of those trades. Matt Laporta was sort of the the centerpiece of the Sabathia deal, and yep. that didn't work out. But they got Michael Brantley, who's now been a pretty solid outfielder for three years, and they just signed him yep. to an extension and. It's not a sexy return, but it turns out, you know, they've they've gotten more out of Michael Brantley than they, you know, would have gotten out of another half a year of Sabathia. Was an insane right. half a year he had for the Brewers. <laughs> um, yeah, no doubt. I want to come back to the Expos moving uh, and becoming the Nationals. Um, did any of your Expos fan friends become Nationals fans? No, no, because I mean. You know, this is the whole Seinfeld thing. Seinfeld used to say that, why do you root for sports teams? You're rooting for laundry. I mean, you're rooting for right. your own laundry, though. You're not rooting for the laundry of the guy in the dryer next to you. I mean, it's it's a, it's a very much a, a regional allegiance, so there would be no reason. And, in fact, I, you know, there are probably more of my friends who, I wouldn't say they're bitter against the Nationals, but who kind of gave up on baseball after that and anything else. And, uh, and I don't blame them at all. I mean, there's no, you know, here's the thing about all of us. Obviously, I'm a big baseball fan that goes without saying and I made my career out of baseball and all that but even I was an Expos fan first and a baseball fan second I mean that that was always the way it is and I think that if you really drill down to it that's probably the way most fans are you know you're, maybe you're a little different I mean you're like me where you know you really write about it seriously and you take it seriously and all this stuff but I bet if you talk to a lot of your pals they certainly like baseball but maybe they're Indian fans more, more than baseball fans if the Indians left tomorrow it would leave this taste that would be a bad taste in the mouth that they would be it would be hard to overcome that. So, you know, yeah. that that was sort of how it was. And of course Montreal is it's just it's other. You know, it's not it's it's very much a different kind of place. It's in Canada, it's in French Canada. Uh you know, we always felt that it was us against the world. You'd watch uh, I moved to the States later and you see these highlights on ESPN and they're mocking the fans and whatever and it was just it became very, very sour and bitter that it was just the feeling was the whole institution of baseball was kind of conspiring against the Expos. That's obviously an exaggeration now, but gosh, you know, Bud Selig was kind of saying, oh, this can't stand, and the whole Jeffrey Moria nonsense, and it was just all this stuff that was really, really unpleasant. So, yeah, I don't uh, I don't uh, begrudge people for giving up completely. There were a couple of my friends who became Jays fans, but there's not one that became a national fan. Right. Well, you know, Cleveland had the, you know, the Browns left for Baltimore in yes. a, you know, a similarly sort of ugly situation, but then they got the new Browns a few years later. Um, right. And I think they were allowed to co-opt the old Browns, you know, history and everything like that. And the Ravens were basically treated as an expansion franchise at that point. Which is great. Um, yeah. And which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. Well, let's before we go, let's circle, let's come around to this off season and the upcoming season. Um, are there are there teams you think have done a, a particularly good job or a particularly bad job in the last couple months? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, it's hard to find that many teams that look clearly better than they were last year. I, I think that Seattle obviously is the most obvious one with the Cano signing being one of many, and, and, you know, maybe it's not much nuance to throwing a lot of money at players, but uh, I admire Seattle for that in the sense that uh, there's this perception, you know, that if we get these big free agents, oh, it's going to be the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox, and that's nonsense, yeah. and I'm glad that the Mariners turned that on its head a little bit, because the Mariners, their local TV deal, they made 100, they're making $115 million for the year. 
So don't tell me that they can't afford Cano. They obviously can. So it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I'm happy that they went out and they spent the money they needed to. And uh, and that's great. And, you know, I don't know that Cano's going to bring them World Series or not, but you got to try. You know, it either goes into the money, the pockets of the owners, or they acquire real talent. And I'm glad that they acquired real right. talent. So that's good. Uh, I actually like what Tampa Bay did. I mean, they retained everybody that they needed to. They brought everyone back. Grant Balfour, they got, you know, affordably. Uh, they locked up David DeJesus. They locked up James Loney. You know, fine players, reasonable players anyway. Brandley types, I guess you could say. And then they're going right. to get a full year of Will Myers and a full year of Chris Archer. I like picking up Brian Hannigan. He's got some subtle, good defensive skills that's perfect for that team. Uh, you know, they, they were a good club last year, and I just think that they tightened things up enough that there are really no obvious weaknesses on that club. I think they might be the best team in the ALE, to be honest with you, and that's saying a lot, as good as that division is every year. Yeah, no, uh, I actually did. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to today someone at Let's Go Tribe was kind of, who's been running through some of the other American League teams, yep. and he was, he was looking at some of the ALEs today. And looking at the rosters, I had the same reaction that, they're not a dramatically different team, but I feel like I like their roster more than Boston's, more than New York's. Well, Boston lost Ellsbury. You know, I mean, uh, they might lose Drew. They, they, uh, Napoli, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a, well, Napoli's there, but um, but Ellsbury's gone and Drew's, you know, maybe gone, and that's that's a tough situation. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to see. And plus, you know, you have to figure some regression towards the mean, right? I mean, the Red Sox went from having the worst luck in the world 2012, yeah. having the best luck in 2013. So you imagine there's some equilibrium going forward uh, with this season. That should be very competitive. I thought Oakland did a pretty good job. Nothing dramatic, but locking up Coco and, and uh, fortifying an already very, very strong bullpen. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. some pretty good things over there, too. They're going to get a full year of Sonny Gray, same kind of thing as the Will Myers situation. So uh, I feel pretty good about them, too. You know, it's uh, and, and it really feels like so much of the action was in the American League. I mean, the National League didn't really go out and yeah. – Poach too many big free agents. Matt Garza, I guess, but not much else aside from that. It feels like the American League, you know, I know the National League keeps winning all these World Series aside from 2013, but to me the AL has been the better league for quite a few years, and if anything, the balance has shifted even further to the AL uh, over this winter. Right. Yeah, I I think the same thing. I think, yeah, I definitely have the sense the AL is the better league. I mean, when you look at the the record in interleague play, I think is probably the best barometer of – which league is better. And I think pretty much every year for a decade or so, the American league has had the better record. Um, how about one of the bigger moves that not Indians, but the Tigers, which is a team Indians fans pay a lot of attention to. what do you think of the Prince Fielder yeah. trade? Um, I can understand it from both teams perspective, I guess. I mean, the, the, the Tigers just had, the pieces didn't fit. You know, you can't really carry Victor Martinez and Prince Fielder and Miguel Cabrera, and it really came home to roost in the playoffs. I mean, you know, Fielder belly flopping on the field, and Cabrera, <laughs> I mean, he was injured, obviously, but, I mean, you know, he's yeah. such a bad defensive player, and it's even worse when he's hurt, and Fielder's no good defensively, and and, uh, and then you got Martinez at the DH, he's not going to catch, and they just needed to clear up that log jam a little bit, and Kipler's a pretty good player, you know? I mean, he had a little bit of a down year last year, but... He's solid. He's not the, the offensive threat that Fielder is, but it's a different position, right? I mean, you know, right. uh, offensive second isn't that far off Fielder's at first, especially if Fielder's new baseline is what we saw in 2013, you know, compared to what he was before, which is quite possible. So right. I really have a problem with that trade. And I honestly think that that's – we haven't seen the other shoe drop yet because, you know, to me it looked like Chu was either going to sign with Texas or Detroit after that deal. He ultimately signed with Texas. 
And so I think that the one thing that we haven't seen yet is where that Detroit money is going. It's going to match right. right? You're going to see an extension between now and some point, maybe Memorial Day, maybe even opening day. I, I cannot imagine that them getting that horrible fielder contract off the books doesn't help them in some way. They didn't spend it on an outfielder. You know, they, they got Rajah Davis, who's okay. They're going to play Castellanos at third. But it just kind of feels like there's money to be spent, and I think it will be yeah. spent. I think Scherz is the guy who's going to get it. And, I mean, if that is yep. a, a, a byproduct of the fielder deal, then you can't really argue with it because Scherz is terrific. I mean, obviously, the defending play on Right. Yep, no, that's my sense of it, too. The, the, the biggest gain is the money it frees up, because if that's the difference between keeping Scherzer and letting him go, then, you know, sure. it's sort of like you traded Fielder for Kinsler and Scherzer. Um, oh. Yeah, I think I, I, the same thing on that. The Indians had a pretty quiet off season, which is sort of what I expected. It's sort of just, you know, they a surprise 92-win team last year, Um and as a fan, certainly, you know, you'd like to see them go out and spend and build on that. But I think last year when they signed Swisher and Bourne, that was the big payroll expansion, and it was unrealistic to right. think they'd blurge again. Um, well, and the thing is, if you look at the roster, I mean, the big thing right now is that Ubaldo is presumably going to leave, and he was very good last year and all that. But, I mean, if you look at the roster, those are Salazar starts, right? I mean, he's, he had just uh, pitched a little bit last year, and he's obviously a very talented guy. Now you're going to get presumably 32 starts out of him if he's healthy, so that's great. You know, and him and the Cal right. being healthy a whole year and all that. So I don't necessarily think there's a huge loss. Number five starter is hard to say who it is right now, and, of course, if that number five starter was, or at least if the vacant spot was filled by somebody of Ubaldo's uh, pedigree, then that would bode very well for the team. So, it would be nice if that was the case, but I mean, you're rolling four guys out there who are pretty capable, so I'd feel pretty okay about that. And then beyond that, you know, what, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to sign Robinson Cano or whatever? I mean, it's just, <laughs> there, there wasn't that much else out there that kind of made a lot of yeah. sense, I guess. You know, I guess they have, to, they have to consider the bullpen. They lost Smith, they lost Perez. It's not great, but whatever. You know, maybe that's a little bit of an area of concern. Uh, you know, there are some other things here and there, but the team has currently constituted can be a contender anyway, they can be good enough that they get to June or July and they can say, all right, you know, we're on pace to win 86 games. Can we push the needle a little bit and now make a trade for a Washington guy right. or whatever? And, and, and that's entirely possible. You know, maybe they go ahead and get, I don't know, Homer Bailey in June or whatever. I think all, all those things are on the table. And uh, I wouldn't be too, too discouraged here. I think they're not going to be as currently constituted. They're probably not a 92-win team, but uh, I don't think they're bad by any means. And I think it's not a stretch to say that they can at least be in the mix. Right. Yeah, that's my sense of it. Um, well, with a new book coming out soon, do you have, uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, do you have, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be doing more than just this podcast to promote the book. Do you have, uh, are there tour dates or anything like that coming up? Yeah, I'll be, uh, let's see, I'll be in Montreal and Toronto. Those are pretty obvious. Uh, right. I'm going to do some New York things. Uh, Den- I live here in Denver. I'll do some things in Denver. Randomly, I've got a couple of things going on in Dallas. And then there's some other cities I'm going to more to do media than signings or whatever. I'm going to be in L.A. next month, and I'm doing a bunch of big podcasts that you've probably heard of, which will be a lot of fun. And, yeah, uh, yeah so it's good. I don't uh, – I know – I guess a lot of writers are introverts. Not me, man. I love to talk. It's great. So, I mean, if, uh, <laughs> you know, if the Nerdist podcast is like, yeah, come on, the Nerdist podcast, I'm like, yeah, sign me up. That sounds amazing. So I'm looking forward nice. to doing things like that. Yeah, that'll be really cool. So a uh, lot of fun, TV, podcasts, radio, all that good stuff. Got my suits dry clean. Good to go. 
Good. And it's March 20, March 20th, yeah, 28th, so March 25th, 25, um, but people could definitely pre-order it on Amazon or, you know, if yeah. you want to support Indies, I guess like Powell's.com is fine or Barnes & Noble. If you want the ebook, you can pre-order the ebook. There's all kinds of ways you can get your hands on it. It's called <laughs> Up, Up, and Away, and uh, it's good. I, I was pretty happy with the previous book. I will say unequivocally that this book is way, way better than the extra 2%. It's I more personal. Can... It touches the heartstrings more. Better stories. It's it's really it's good. I think this is a good book. I think I can say that without sounding like a like a jerk about it. Yeah, I I can remember you. You know, maybe in 2011 when you signed the deal, you probably tweeted something about it. And uh, I've been looking forward to it since then. So I've got my copy pre-ordered, and uh, I, I hope it's a success. I I hope it doesn't tie you up from writing about baseball too much once the season starts, because I'd hate to miss that. No, but, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the book. Well, Jonah, thanks a Thank lot you. for joining me. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, good luck with the column before the media storm. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, have a good night. Thank you. Again, that was Jonah Carey, and uh, the new book coming out is Up, Up, and Away. And as he said, it's coming out March 25th, and you can pre-order it already. And uh, and then you can find his work uh, every week at Grantland, where he's the lead baseball writer. Uh, and you can find him on podcasts other than this one, too. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll keep this podcast – well, not this podcast, but – Let's Talk Tribe will be back to being a, a regular part of Let's Go Tribe. And uh, in future installments in the next couple of weeks, uh, I'll talk more about the uh, position battles coming up in camp. And uh, Carlos Santana hoping to play third base, figure out who's going to be the fifth starter and stuff like that. And uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.